This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program for the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. Want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. My name is Nicholas Meyer, director of Star Trek 2 and 6, and you are listening to Standard Orbit on Trek FM. Risk is our business. It's like nothing we've dealt with before. By golly, Jim, I'm beginning to think I can cure a rainy day. I can't change the laws of physics. Now in standard orbit, sir. Welcome, everyone, to Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated podcast that covers the original and new cast of Captain Kirk and the Enterprise. I am Ken Tripp. And I am Zach Moore. We have a couple of special guests. First, we have Mr. Lance Laster. How are you doing, Lance? Great. How are you? You know him from our Star Trek Las Vegas episode. Woo! Back. <laughs> and we... Vegas, baby. Here we Welcome go. back. And we also have Mr. Chris Clow. What's up, Chris? Hey, thanks for having me, man. I really appreciate the invite. Absolutely. Chris was on... Our episode, Voices with Character, about a uh, crossover between Batman, the animated series, and Star Trek, the original series. Don't know the episode number. I never do, so whatever. <laughs> uh, but he's back, so look it up. <laughs> we had some great conversations with these guys in the past. So. It's between Can you remember one that episode number? Yeah, no, but I know it's between 1 and 240, so that's not too hard. <laughs> All right, it really narrows it down. <laughs> it does. <laughs> so we want to have a roundtable discussion this week about let that be your last battlefield i mean kind of been on a season three kick you know recently season three a lot of people overlook it you know they talk about all the great episodes of the first and second season i you know season three i think we can all agree the weakest season of tos but that doesn't mean it's bad it's i mean seasons one and two are just that good uh but there are some great episodes in season three let that be your best battle let that be your last battlefield is a mouthful but it's also one of the episodes in season three so it's in my top five of season three, would you guys agree? Was it, you know universally? What is I mean? What 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 is you guys consensus on this episode as where it ranks and 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 great Star Trek episodes? I I think it's spectacular. Uh, I mean, I watched it for the first time when I was young enough that it made a pretty significant impression on me. I think the intended message definitely punched through at the right time. So uh, I have a lot of reverence for it, and of course the fact that Frank Gorshin is in it connects with me as a Batman fan. Uh, in, in fact, we need to talk about how this is the only episode in the entire original series where they zoom in and out of the red alert, which is almost like a camera function taken out of Batman, strangely enough. Yeah, th- that is an odd choice, but there, there, you know, there are a lot of creative choices. I want to talk about that when we get in our discussion sure, yeah. in this episode, directing-wise, and that, that is the one that really sticks out. <laughs> it's like, yeah. oh, okay, I see what we're doing here. <laughs> what about you, Lance? Uh, this has always been one of my favorite TOS episodes, just in general. Um, it's 
not one. It's among the first handful that I saw because I've I've seen these episodes just out of order. I need to like have like do a rewatch myself of like just everything like in order. But uh, this is one of the first ones I saw, and like you said, Chris, it really resonated with me um, as an African American. Also, I have a little bit of different appreciation for this episode and what it's trying to say. I love that they tackled this issue at the at, at the time that they did, and it's just a well done episode in my opinion. No, I, I feel the same way as you guys. I think it was very impactful. Uh, it, it's it's timing. I think you know, in, in the late '60s, was was more than appropriate. But it, it's interesting. I was um, running around this morning. I had been traveling all week, and um, growing up as a kid, uh, I, I remember first seeing that episode. And you know, I grew up in a very progressive home, which was which was a good thing in Boston. And one of the things that uh, was kind of funny is thinking about this show coming on. And then I'm I'm listening on on satellite radio and Three Dog Night comes up with you know Child is Black Child is White, which as a kid was one of my favorite songs to listen to too. Just coincidentally, I said like, okay, there's definitely a theme today uh, that that is permeating this the uh, the atmosphere, which I thought was pretty cool. But it is um, it, you know it, it's it's one of those episodes I think uh, when you first see it you know it, it opens your eyes quite a bit and then. As time goes by, you know, you, you can kind of pick on it technically from time to time or its length or some of the fillers that they had. But, you know, sometimes uh, people say, well, it's it's a very direct message. Well, sometimes messages need to be pretty direct. And I think that uh, Star Trek did it right with this one. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of the most iconic images of all of the franchise, right? The guys with the white face, black face, right? That's even, you know, you go to like the Futurama parody of Star Trek, the where no fan has gone before. There's people drawn like that, you know? It's, a, uh, one of, it's one of the few action figures they sold back in the 70s, the, the Chiron figures, what they called it. Mm-hmm. I was like, come on, guys. <laughs> but they're bad branding. Like, they got a Gorn, which is a T-Rex in a Klingon costume. Yep. They have this guy, he's <laughs> called Chiron, right? He's <laughs> he's half black, half white. His clothes are as well, <laughs> okay? Like Two-Face? Yeah, he's like, like a Two-Face action figure. Anyway, all that to say, uh, you know, the original series uh, has permeated pop culture, and this is one of those striking images you see on the original series. Uh, and, you know, I love this episode. Even beyond just season three being great, I, I, it's one that I revisit a lot because it's a very dynamic, enjoyable episode. Uh, Frank Gorshin is a big reason as well, as yep. you guys said. Uh, cool to see Captain Kirk go toe-to-toe with the Riddler. Uh-huh. <laughs> and um, just a lot to, lot to unpack here in this episode, so, so let's let's get into it. You know, this episode, it was, it was written by quote-unquote Lee Cronin. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, that is Gene L. Kuhn's uh, pen name. Uh, when he was, he was, he had kind of exited the series. So whenever there's a Lee Cronin script in season three, that's originated by Gene Kuhn. Uh, Spock's Brain was one of them, by the way. You might be interested to know. Directed by Judd Taylor. Let's talk about this. This guy, he had a lot, he had a lot of dynamic shots in this episode. He had a lot of vision, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned the zoom in, zoom out. That is, to- yeah, that is totally Batman, it right? Is. Like you got you got to think that that oh we got Frank Gorshin I know what I'll do I'm gonna do this <laughs> and 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 to me that's that that sticks out as being a, a very odd choice and kind of under uh, undercuts some tension and some key moments when we're doing that and what what did you guys think of that zoom in zoom out only episode it's ever done by the way on the show. It was for well for me it was just you're right it 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 seemed out of place and it seemed like really random but you're right it like it's it's very fitting that it happens in a 
in an episode where Frank Gorshin is, is guest starring. Because, like, I mean, it's it was almost like a prerequisite for them. It's like, oh, Frank's here. Let's do this little this little nod to the other show that he was just on and just wrapped on. Yeah, this, this is a contemporary. Batman had just ended like a year before. It did. That's why he was able to, to guest on this. Right. Even some of the Frank Gorshinisms, where yes. he's like, you, like, he gets all, like, riled up, and I just can see the Riddler. Same. Oh, yeah. Even the tight clothes. I was thinking that because I was rewatching it last night in preparation for this. And and yeah, it's just like that costume is not abundantly different from what he wore on Batman. It's just from a form fitting perspective. And uh, so it's like, does he go for these kinds of jobs? That's a that's a really interesting (laughs) idea. But. You know, the, the thing that I continually love about Gorshin, especially, like, if you only compared what he did on Batman to what he did in this episode, it shows a range that I don't think he's often given credit for. Uh, and I, I was just about to comment on that. He's, he's, he's really good in this episode. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, comedians in general can surprise you with how well they can do dramatic work. The one that immediately comes to mind for me is uh, Robin Williams in something like Insomnia or One Hour Photo. I mean, his performances in both of those movies are captivating. And uh, I don't know if Beale is quite on that level, but it's still it's still very solid. He He adds to a sense of tension and a sense of menace, particularly when he's taking control of the Enterprise and explaining his power before, you know, before the, uh, the destruct sequences entered in. And I really appreciate that he brought, uh, that sense of, I guess, kind of menacing weight to it that some people may not have expected if they've only absorbed his work on, on Batman or seen him at a roast of Dean Martin or, or something like that. So, uh, so I, I think Frank Gorshin is definitely a, a positive in this episode. Just, just for the the sheer ability that he had to to give it some dramatic weight. Yeah, that's a great point, Chris. You bring up Robin Williams. I actually those are my favorite Robin Williams performances when he's playing a serious role. You know, like one hour photo. And I don't know if it's like because it's against type. I don't know, but there's just something about that. As you said, comedians, right? Eat Steve Carell, mm-hmm. right? I mean, he he's kind of transitioned to a more serious actor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, th- that's and that's point. the thing. Like, I've, I've, uh, it's it's when. Because in comedy, you get loud, you get big uh, movements, you, you know, uh, hand gestures and stuff. So when you, it's like when they start to tip up. Like I saw a trailer just the other day. It's a new movie, Steve Grill coming out, and I was like, "This is good." But then he starts like, "My son is out there," and I start thinking about like Michael Scott, like it's happening, people, or something like whatever. <laughs> I declare bankruptcy. <laughs> <laughs> so there's that, and then that's only those in this episode. There's only those small moments where Frank Gorshin he's getting all like mad at, at Loki. Uh, and I, I see the hints of the Riddler, but you're right. I, I it's great to to see him in a totally different context. And I don't, I'm unfamiliar with his you know body of work outside of Batman and Star Trek, to be honest. So I don't know if it was rare for him to do a serious role or not. Uh, what did you think, Ken? Well, I, again, because of Batman, you instantly knew who he was, and that, that's pretty common though in the '60s and '70s. I guess maybe right up until now, there's just a bunch of character actors that pop up all the time, you know. Uh, that that you would see from one series to the next, and they would play a similar character. But I don't, for a second, you know, I wasn't seeing him as the Riddler when I when I saw this. I I can't remember, as young as I was, if if what I saw first, you know, and remember first. But I thought that that he played the role pretty well. I think it um, it aligns very well with um, what Nicholas Meyer tells you know a lot of his actors and so forth, or the advice that he gave Ricardo Montalban when he was playing Khan: never show your top. 
right? He was he was very controlled in this, you know. In the standoff, I thought was was pretty good, but he he played, you know, to me, you know, a a a backwards law enforcement officer very very well. You know, he was he was like a a very controlled bounty hunter. I don't know what you want to call it, uh, but he he had a mission. Uh, he believed in that mission. Uh, as screwed up as is for the reasons uh, to me, it was uh, it was I thought he pulled it off very well. And um, I like the comparisons. Now you've got me in my head thinking of Jim Carrey and all these other comedians now that have played some pretty good serious roles and how they're able to spin it. And, uh, you know, it really makes their career more vibrant. I'm just trying to remember if I if if I saw Frank Gorshin in other roles, I'm sure you know, if you look back into 1970s stuff, it, it wouldn't surprise me to see him on like Barnaby Jones or Cannon or some, you know, some, <laughs> some of those other shows that, that ran quite frequently. You know, in the Destruct sequence, right? We'll talk about that because I mm-hmm. love Star Trek Three. Everybody knows that. Who listens to Standard of it? This is the genesis, no, no Star Trek Three pun intended, of, <laughs> of the self-destruct sequence, right? Uh, so we get the Code 1A, 1B, you know, it's, yeah. it's Spock uh, instead of Scotty and Chekhov. It's Spock and Chekhov because Spock wasn't there. In Star Trek Three, uh, but hey, all good on Harv Bennett. He he, you know, he famously rewatched the entire original series before he wrote Star Trek Two, so obviously that stuff was still in his mind. He filed stuff away for later. So when he when he wrote Star Trek Three from scratch, you know, that was all him on Star Trek Three. He remembered this and he pulled it out. And and you know, they didn't have the internet back then. They have memory alpha, anything like that. He had to run the reel, reel, or get the script or something and copy and paste. And it lines up exactly to what they do in Star Trek Three. And I love that continuity. Not that it matters. Like if it would have been different, everything else is different about the Enterprise in the movies. If it would have been different, it would have been a deal breaker. But I really love that they went back to that in, in this episode. What about y'all? Yeah, it, it retroactively makes the episode even more important, just not not like in a huge way, but it's nice to see that lineage presented uh, up into the movies. And similarly to, to the way that it's explored in Star Trek Three, it's also a moment of, of tension. It's a totally different kind of tension, uh, because I think in Star Trek Three, there's probably a, a greater sense of dread attached to it. Uh, just by virtue of what it was going to do in the movie itself, but no, I, I, I definitely every time I watch this episode and I think of uh, the fact that it's sort of representing that and keeping it forward. First of all, I guess uh, Duotronics haven't really advanced that much further in what was it, like twenty years or so or thereabouts. But uh, Enterprise but it's, is twenty years old. But no, I, it's definitely always something that I make note of when I watch the episode, definitely. Well, I knew it was definitely going to go in this direction because of your affinity for Star Trek Three, but I, <laughs> I, I did think that um, it was nice to show that, that connection. I think at the time, it was, you know, it was one of those things that, um, when, you, when you think of those moments in the TV show that set the stage for all the follow-on Star Trek movies and other TV shows. That piece is a pretty important piece, you know, where, where that, that follows on, uh, you know, right into Next Generation and others. Uh, it's, it's a little bit more simple uh, as they go forward. You know, they're not looking at a screen and yeah. not, it's not repeating and it's, it's pretty Put fast. Put your handprint on it. Do you, do you agree? Yeah, yes. yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty easy to, to go into self-destruct now uh, as, you know, technology would allow, but... Uh, I, I really did like the scene. But you know what? That, that scene itself had a lot of tension. A lot of tension. And, you know, in Star Trek III, um, it, was, it was a surprise move, even though we knew 
you know, because they showed in the commercials before they showed the movie uh, that the Enterprise was going <laughs> to blow up. You didn't necessarily know how, if it was going to get shot or what, you know, whatever it was. But just that, that whole scene itself, you know, that, that game of chess going back and forth, I, I, I thought um, if you're going to threaten to blow up the ship, which they had a number of times, uh, that's the way to do it. I mean, it was really, you know, you're holding on to, to, to the armchairs as, as, that, as that scene goes down. Uh, Ken, let me ask you this. Is there an auto-destruct on military vehicles in today's day and age? Uh, you know, there probably... Uh, there's always been... Like the to ab- keep it from falling into enemy hands? Yeah, I guess, well, they call the it idea. scuttle the ship, right? I mean, okay. so, you know, in, in in our world, that's it's not so hard because... Um, it, it wouldn't be hard in space either. Just open up a bunch of airlocks, right? And things are going to go boom, <laughs> or it's going to compress. Or just fire a phaser into the warp core. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's not that hard, but it's like anything else. I don't, I don't know of a particular switch... And um, hopefully there isn't one, you know, because I do have a proclivity to go, oh, that's a pretty colored button. What does this do? Um, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't know of one. You know, I, I think of Hunt for Red October when the, um, you know, the, the Russian cook there who was part of the KGB is, is just trigger wiring a warhead to blow up, right? That type of stuff. Well, I know that um, on aircraft, uh, if aircraft crashes, then the soldiers will actually just set charges to detonate it. That's what happened in the raid on Osama bin Laden's compound exactly in Pakistan. Exactly true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah, it's just something that I've accepted from Star Trek. Oh, well, all these ships obviously have an auto-destruct because I've seen every crew do it. And you think, wait, what is the application in the real world for that? But no, you guys have kind of <laughs> kind of painted that in the 21st century uh, framework for me, so thank you. Because you're right, Ken, I didn't think about that. Not only Star Trek Three because it's verbatim, that's what I was thinking, but... Every show, multiple episodes, especially Picard. I think Picard was always trying to blow up the Enterprise for some reason. I guess he didn't really like Stargazer was his ship. He didn't really care about the Enterprise as much. I mean, he said so as much, right, in the show. So it's like that's his baby. The first two seasons, there's an episode where where they in each season where him and Riker go down to engineering and go blow up the Enterprise almost. You know, so uh, and then of course you know it's Cisco and Janeway, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, But anyway, so so Lance, what did you think about the sequence where these these tight shots of their eyes and their mouth and like. Did that help or hurt this whole auto-destruct sequence for you? It helped because, I mean, like, as the other guys were saying, it it creates, like, it was very a very tense scene, and it helped kind of creates more of it by getting a close-up on everybody's reaction shot. And, you know, your eyes tell so much. And so I think everybody did a good job in this particular episode of kind of really emoting like what they're thinking and the dread that they have, especially, especially doing because uh, like, cause he was just like, please no, like, like you can, you can just kind of like see the wheels. <laughs> well, turning. Scotty loves the enterprise. Exactly. He doesn't want to blow it up. So, um, so I, I really appreciated that. And then it, and the whole thing, that whole standoff scene just to me kind of just reminded me of like, you know, movies like uh Hunt for red October or crimson tide where you have these like standoff type of deals and you're wondering who's going to flinch first. Uh, and I love Kirk's line about how he's just like, no, he's like no power in the universe can stop this ship from exploding once it gets to you know that point. And I was just and that's a you know eventually what makes Beale like you know stop. And uh, I think through the like using the eyes and how they utilize the actors utilize how they were going to emote through their eyes worked really well here. Well, and I think it's if it were in another episode that that kind of direction and camera work would be out of place. But because this whole episode has very unique camera work, it just it kind of fits into the greater piece. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes like you know what this guy's going to try something different. All right, let's let's go for it because you know we've seen these sets. 80 episodes, you know, let's let's shake it up. You know, whenever you get different camera angles and, and, and new creative ways, even they have some high angle shots in, in this episode as well in certain scenes. And, and they're just really doing a lot with the camera, which is great to see in the third season. 
because you know as as you know they thought all right well we're gonna get canceled you know uh you know the budget's not here anymore we have these bottle shows it's easy to get complacent and just all right guys put it at setup a all right let's go you know but but actually getting up there in the rafters and getting super tight shots and all that shows a lot of creative juice was you know still left in, in the third season here and that was it was really great to see and speaking to that though like when it comes to the limitations that were imposed upon season three i'm to varying degrees of success they were able to to create some classics like this one, but I think this one is also kind of emblematic of what can happen when you are forced to be truly creative when the chips are down, you know? It's, because it's, not that it's easy to be creative even if you have a giant budget, but when you have limitations imposed on you, then, you know, everyone making the show has to do the best they can with what they have, and... Of all the episodes of season three, this one, I think, kind of emphasizes just how high they were able to reach, even with the the limitations that were imposed on them. I mean, from a wider perspective, I have a lot of affection for season three because of those limitations. Uh, I think you get a lot of great character moments out of season three in general, but, uh, but this one is definitely a standout, and it shows what they were able to do with a lot of difficult limitations that were imposed upon them by the network. Art thrives on restraint. Where have I heard that before? Yes. yes. From the Book of Meyer, chapter one. That's right, man. And that's, that's exactly <laughs> true. And, and it, does, it does force people to, to think differently, act differently. I also like the fact that the director wanted to put his stamp on it. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. And... Um, you know, those in and out scenes or whatnot, it can be a little distracting at time. But, you know, a lot of times when, when a ship goes to red alert and, and you just see people walking, sometimes not even at a quick pace. And that, that was something that used to, it wasn't great on TOS. It was freaking horrible on TNG. You know, mm. you got to get to your battle stations. <laughs> yeah. You know, or, you know, there's Klingons and they've got a hostage. I'm walking there now, Captain, at an exceptionally slow rate to rescue them. Uh, it, it's just, you know, a sense of urgency. And what I liked about that, you know, seeing those those scenes or whatever, you realize, okay, ship's in peril. There's there's a sense of urgency. Got to go, got to go. Right? I mean, this is a big deal when you Chaos, go right away. Man. Yes, that's right. Let's let's go. And when you see it, you know, I, I think, Lance, you, a great example is, you know, Crimson Tide. Uh, you know, when that ship was, when they were going from one alert to another, I mean, there's people running all over the place, jumping down the well decks and stuff. That's what happens on a warship. When you're going to battle stations, there's no time. You've got to get there as fast as you can. And uh, I don't know, to me, that, that, that gave the show some energy, which had always been directed consistently very lackluster in Star Trek. Don't know why, but it just was. You know, the movies did it better. Well, yeah, and TOS, you know, is the most energetic direction of all the shows. You know, well, up, up until Discovery, I guess, because you know we have that kind of '09 flavor of, of camera angles and whatnot. Uh, even T, and that's what, and you know, not to get on this tangent, right? But I, I, I appreciate a lot of early TNG because they had dynamic camera angles. You know, the bridge or this or that. You know, I feel like they kind of settle in. That's what I'm saying about TOS season three. They're, they're they're still being very creative, but you get to like TNG season like five, a lot staler. You know, and just something creative. You don't have those dynamic shocks of the bridge and stuff like that. And you got people leisurely walking to battle stations. I'll keep an eye out for that next time. <laughs> I'm watching TNG and they go to Red Alert again. So, <laughs> so we're talking about all this new creative, you know, ideas and stuff. There, there is some stock footage in this episode uh, that stuck out to me. You have the classic shots of Sulu and Chekhov, you know, turning around, looking at Kirk and reacting, right? And this episode, 
I, it really stuck out to me more than any of them that, look, guys, I understand you have a budget. I understand that George Decay was here before Walter Koenig. I understand that you shot these on days they both weren't here. But they keep consistently cutting from, like, the Sulu reaction shot with Billy Blackburn sitting next to him. <laughs> and then the, the checkoff reaction shot of Billy Blackburn sitting next to him, or Sulu should be. And they keep turning around looking at Kirk. I'm like, could we have, could we have cropped this a little tighter? Like, could there have just been one day where we get... Walter and George in the chairs together and have this reaction <laughs> shot because just because the, I I get it okay but they went to it so many times back and forth in this episode it really stuck out to me I don't know it sounds like it Chris it might have stuck out to you <laughs> yeah I, I mean I think that that's just a symptom of the pretty intense penny pinching that was going on mm-hmm. by this time I mean that they they must have not wanted to spend a single cent more on film stock. Yeah. To get those like single second shots in some cases, <laughs> that that's the only thing that that I think probably kind of justifies it is that they were they were working so intensely to keep the budget down, but it is so noticeable if you know where to right. look. Then yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm I'm with you. And and even and there is a wide shot, that, and I don't know what episode this is from, and they use it actually a lot over TOS. As, I, as I've been watching more lately, I see more of the live action stock footage. Like in uh, uh, Brandon and I, Brandon Shamantella just did a commentary on, on what our little girls made of, and there's a shot where Kirk, it's a duplicate Kirk in this episode, but he's like going to a turbo lift. I'm like, I think that's from the corporate maneuver, and it is. It's like a whole scene of Kirk walking down the hallway, getting on the turbo lift from another episode. This is early season one. There's no excuse. There's again, Billy Blackburn is is your litmus test, right? Because you see him. There's wide shot of the bridge, and they use it at least twice in this episode. That's why I noticed it. I think it's. I think he's sitting in Chekhov's chair because you hear Walter Kane talk, but he's not in. Chekhov is not in this yeah. shot. You hear him talking though, and you see Billy Blackburn. So it's it, interesting to see just point out these things. And oh, yes, it's 1968, 1969. They didn't think 50 years later, us nerds are going to be sitting here. Talking about it on the internet, analyzing every last frame of episode. But it, it, to me, that that's fun to point to, to see these things. And, and there's one last thing, and I, I don't know how many times I used it, but whenever like Chekhov flips a switch to like send the decontamination to the planet, and that is clearly from another episode. I, I think it's from Doomsday Machine where Kirk flips the switch on the on the constellation, and they might have used it other places too. But it's just, it's so close. It's just a hand, so they got away with. Like to your point, Chris, every second counts of film stock. Can we shoot Walter Candy pushing this button? No, no, no. Tell you what, guys, I got just a shot. We got a hand flipping a switch. <laughs> Cut it in here. So fun things to notice about this yeah. episode. I thought. Well, don't, so. well, this show, the show, right, was notoriously short. It they they were trying as much as they could to to get it to whatever it was supposed to be, 48 minutes or whatever it was back in the day, 50. And um, so I understand um, the saving of stock footage to, to replace um, scenes. But I also wonder, too, if, if, they, if they needed to fill in scenes that they didn't need to show necessarily in order just to expand the episode that much further. You know, they, they, were, they were down to the seconds, right? Because they put in that awfully long chase scene at the end to fill in that yeah, gap, that, too. So that, that, That's initially when you were talking about stock footage that's the first thing that came to my mind was because they were using very old stock footage well 25 that's what yeah that was stock footage from world war ii yeah yeah and uh and that chase sequence is definitely awkward yes you know that's probably the most awkward thing in the episode because like when i was watching i was like man how how long did they have like them run for because they look like they're wiped out like for most of that it's like it's like you know if you've like y'all have you know run before so it's like you know when you're tired and you're like at the end of it you're just like kind of barely moving your arms are barely moving when you're doing it you're just kind of trying to get through it that's what they look like that and and the speed doesn't look nearly as 
like it doesn't correspond with the exaggerated <laughs> yes. movement. So it's almost like <laughs> exactly. It's almost like those like in Wayne's World when they're doing that in front of a green screen. Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> it's, where it's just it's and, and he's moving his head and he does look tired, but it's like he's going so slow. I'm sure to keep pace with the cameraman and. It's definitely, uh, I mean, it's a creative solution. It sounds like they came in a little short on, uh, on on the full runtime of the episode and had to inflate it a little bit. It's a little noticeable that that's what they chose to tack on, but I can't say it's not a creative solution to, to that particular problem. But I also wonder, though, could they have spent just a little bit on those run shots with those establishing reaction shots like we talked about a little bit earlier i mean if you're gonna shoot more footage anyway you could I, I, i'm not an editor so i you know i can't i can't speak to that but you do ask those questions yeah i, I think the truth is somewhere in between there uh d- definitely that they kept filming them running for, for as long as possible yeah. uh it, it, spock is giving like the play-by-play he's like he is now passing the rec room <laughs> and he is not, he literally says that yeah, no. that is a line in this episode <laughs> it's just like the play-by-play from spock um <laughs> ken i like what you said about they were even short even then and they're like all right what else can we put in here like oh Chekhov pushes a button do we have a shot of someone pushing a button somewhere <laughs> let's put that in her you also notice during um there's a lot of reaction shots like like unnecessarily so like like when like Beale comes on the bridge, like we see what every single character yes. like has to say, and it's a great shot, and it's actually the cover of Star Trek Memories, I believe, uh, the shot where Kirk spins around and sees Beale for the first time on the bridge. I believe that screenshot is the cover of Star of Shatner's first Star Trek Memories book, um, but they use it twice in this episode. <laughs> Because they use it twice. I'm oh, like, do Come they? On, okay, I missed the second. Yeah, line. he spins around, and that's and that's the thing. And even getting past, and I'm gonna talk about this as well. Even getting past the stock footage, this episode just narratively repeats because it's like Beale takes over the ship. They do the whole auto destruct thing. Yeah, and he's like, "All right, I'll give you control of the ship back." And then, like ten minutes later, he takes control of the ship again. Yeah. Right. I, so I just feel like even b- before they got to filming, they were short when they were writing it. They seem to be kind of at, at a loss to where much further to go because I'm sure it was mandated. Look, uh, we don't have the budget to go down to some like destroyed planet, <laughs> so we have to stay on the Enterprise the whole time. How can we stretch this out? Uh, and they get to that southernmost part of the galaxy pretty quickly. Uh, go, oh, it's uncharted space. We got there in about ten minutes. Was it the Kelvin timeline with the warp drive where it takes two seconds? So, and is there a southern part of the galaxy? If the galaxy is three dimensional. That indicates two-dimensional thinking, in my opinion. But I don't know. What, what do you guys think? What do you guys think about all that? The thing that con- continuously strikes me, you know, I guess just like from a canonical perspective, is that the name of the planet corresponds with the name of a site of one of the final or the final battle of the Earth-Romulan War. And I don't know. Treaty? If, was it Treaty of Sharon? No, it's Treaty of Algernon. Treaty, Treaty of Algernon. Yeah, in the Battle of Sharon. But but in um, in the defector, Admiral Jarok says the Battle of Shara. Oh, but it, the, that's it's a loophole ever the same way. Yeah, yeah. But I'm 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 just I'm always wondering: is this where the the war ended? I think that, that was probably just Ronald D. Moore being like, "I know this planet name from the original series. Right, yeah, I'm a huge yeah, fan. I'm going to slip it in." Very. Good it's uncharted space, Ronald. They wouldn't have <laughs> a battle there, <laughs> especially so far out. But right. and you know, I was talking with my uh, my wife last night. Because we were both watching this episode, and we were bringing up the the change in warp scale 
because I think getting to the planet so fast, you know, it's supposed to be traveling at warp 10, but yeah, warp- he got me there. I was criticizing the speed. You're right. I completely forgot. Well, he, he, he did makes say it like that. warp 13 or 15. Well, he said like, he said warp 10 and increasing is right. what was said. Right. Yeah. Episode. But warp 10 in the original series equates to about warp eight by the next generation scale. Cause they all, everyone the would have turned into lizards. Correct. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah, 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 exactly. So we did, we didn't, <laughs> we didn't see any lizard babies on, on the original <laughs> enterprise bridge. So they, they were safe from that so i mean obviously in hindsight we know that the speed scale changes but we know that they were traveling faster than normal to get there does that account for getting to an entirely other tip of the galaxy probably not but we've all seen where no man has gone before too so and star trek 5 and 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 star (laughs) trek 5 of course yeah Let's let's just try and forget that Gene Roddenberry said Star Trek V was apocryphal at best. Uh, but either either way, all that stuff it just more strikes me as a symptom of the things that TOS would do in in playing with the specifics of how the rules work that govern the the Star Trek universe at this point. They would go on obviously to firmly establish more how those things work in subsequent series. But uh, it doesn't get in the way of, of the, the message that the episode was telling or uh, the tension that it created. So I tend to give it a pass, I, as you have to do. You know, I don't, I don't need to tell you guys. You have to give that stuff a pass in the original series more than you would in some of the other shows. And I don't think it's, a, it's an impediment to, to where the episode wants to take you, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, we bounce back, right? We... Uh... We see the craziness in the original series. You see a more regulated uh, series in the 80s and 90s. And then you see Star Trek 09. We go back to the TOS mindset. You know, it, none of the rules really do apply. So it, it is it, it is one of those things. You, you look back at Star Trek, especially the original series, and you just you just run with it. You, you know, it, to me, it's, it's about the story. And the more we've been talking, you know, I, I think because it is a very direct you know, hit the head on the nail type of message. They probably realize somewhere along with writing this that because it is a very direct message, it's hard to tell a long story because it, you know, the audience is, is there a long time before they are right. You know where this is going to go. And, and so I think, you know, they, they, they took the importance of getting this episode out, um, you know, with, with the themes that, that Star Trek is famous for and in order to do that, I think they, they, you know, they added a lot of things they probably didn't need to, but for, for, that, for that strong purpose of saying that this message means more than, I guess, the quality, let's put it that way, of, um, of the storytelling, you know, where, where it is redundant and they do pull things into the episode. And I can certainly understand that. And I think, you know, as you look through the lens of 1968, 1969, uh, you know, it was it was a turbulent time, so it it's it was one of those shows that really did capture what was happening in the now. You know, just like it was doing with the Vietnam War and other things uh, that you didn't see on TV back then. You know, the rest of TV kind of played it like none of this stuff is really happening on the outside world. You know, everything's great. My thoughts. Yeah, and that's a great transition, Ken, to the the meat of the episode, the the the, the true message they were getting across. Here. I want to get all that kind of fun Star Trek stuff. Out of the way off the top, you know, uh, minutia nitpicking and whatnot, having fun with it. Yeah, but, yeah, uh, yeah. Just I was just thinking about it as you were speaking. That's all. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, but this episode is is famous, you know, not only visually, but for its message as well. 
and as we have said here, a lot of it is is bonk bonk on the head, right? Uh, But that doesn't bother me because obviously no one has learned the lesson yet about racism. (laughs) So, I mean, yeah, we need to keep bonking into people's heads. So, Lance, what's your what's your take on this episode's uh, message? Um, Well, it's an important one, and then and you know I, you know this episode aired uh, April tenth. Uh, of 1969 is when it when it aired, um, and so that kind of makes me think. It was like, well, what was what else was going on around that time? Well, in '68, that was when Dr. King died. So like the consciousness of the of the country was just like really turned on at that point because you know he everybody knows how important Dr. King was like now, but it's, and they also knew knew that back then. And so that like that was a that's a pivotal moment in history when somebody like that is assassinated. So I think. You know, this episode probably is, you know, in, in many ways is a response to that. Uh, like, the, it's like, well, we should probably on this show talk about the things that are going on currently in this country. Now, did you see Loki is more of a Dr. King or a Malcolm X? Because I kind of obviously you're looking at him through what Bell says about him, right? He's killing people and this and that. So I'm like, all right, they're painting him more as like a militant protester yeah. than the more passive protester. So what is your take on that? I didn't I didn't think uh, Dr. King or Malcolm X, I, I thought further back, I thought more of like a Nat Turner type, uh, you know, who's somebody who led a slave rebellion, because if you, because some of the verbiage that they're using, like when the, the, when the two of them are like verbally sparring with each other, it's a lot of the, the same language that was used to describe slaves or like, you know, or, you know, like, you know, they're savages and, you know, they do call them slaves and stuff like that. It's like, well, and he's fighting for his freedom and he didn't care that, you know, he, you know, taken out people in that process of trying to be a freedom fighter. Uh, so that's kind of what I was thinking of. Like uh, I thought back to those terms. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I was thinking, um, I think back in those times, I mean, if you think 1968, 69, I agree, Lance. It definitely um, reflects on the assassination of Dr. King. I also think that it was even beyond just civil rights. You you had the the protests which were in full force uh, for, you know, so you had anti-war, you had civil rights, you had um, you know women's liberation. You had so many things going on. Uh, the country at the time was very turbulent, right? I mean, I think. Everything kind of came all stopped for a little bit when you have a significant event like the first man on the moon and stuff, uh, you know, and people kind of you, you find those things that, that bring people together. But when I keep thinking of what, what they were trying to get across there, you know, you had you had the Black Panther movement, which was very militant as well back in that time. So you, you had all kinds of extremes. It, it was a. Uh, you know, I think people look through the lens of today and we see, you know, um, I, I see that we still have a long way to go in many areas, but it's almost like racism, which still exists in plenty, has been replaced by, um, you know, uh, ideology. You know, now you're one or the other. Uh, and, you know, we've, we've gone, <laughs> I'm not saying one isn't there and the other, but it's almost like if you, if, you, if you could say, what was it like back then? Well, now if you identify as conservative or liberal in this country, um, there's almost a hatred against you. It's it's bizarre, um, you know, the the lack of tolerance, and so it's it, it is funny how you know what was old becomes new again, but in different forms. Uh, I I think this episode at the end when it showed the World War II footage wasn't far away from what you were seeing on the TV screens at night in Vietnam, 
and you know we had Watts riots. We had you know and that was a little bit later on, but you had cities on fire. I mean, you you, you did have a lot of these problems actually going on during that time, and. Um, so again, it's funny. You can look in the past to see a show about the future to what was going on then. It's it it is a paradox. Yeah. Um, the thing that continuously engages me about this episode is the way that it frames uh, Beale and Loki's frames of mind, because. It's all, I, I love how Kirk and Spock look at Beale when he, you know, when he says, are you blind? And, uh, and he says, he is white on the right side. And they just yeah. share this look like, is this guy for real? Is, is, I mean, and really at the end of the day, that is racism. You can only cut hate so many different ways it's a it's a ridiculous standard uh, by which to completely separate and by extension dehumanize someone based solely on physical appearance and even though it hits you over the head with that you can't say that or or at least I can't say uh, that it doesn't have a serious point about characterizing what we often choose to do to ourselves when it comes to separating ourselves and and not choosing to see the basic humanity in someone else based on this rather superficial difference. Um, so I, I love how the episode just kind of takes that on and basically calls it stupid. You know, and even though, like I said, it, it, it hits you over the head with it, it's still an important framing device, particularly for someone who may not have really thought about those kinds of divisions in such stark terms before. And that's where I think the episode truly shines. Um, and, I mean, speaking to Ken's point about ideology, it also attacks ideology at the end of the episode, or at least the extremes of ideology. Where, you know, if you have two people of such extreme viewpoints, how can you expect them to be sensible? Spock pretty much says as much. He has a lot of great quotes in this episode. Yeah, yeah, he does. I mean, every episode, but this one in, in particular. <laughs> so that, and, and that point at the end, too, I think especially makes it relevant for for now. I mean, it, of course, you know, the political turbulence of the 1960s extends from all of these things, and... It's certainly relevant in its own time, but it has a renewed relevance in such a such an age of hyperpolarization that we're in now, and uh, and that's something that as a as a guy who studied political science in college, I, I'm I'm fascinated by, and I also greatly appreciate because um, you know you need you need your art to be able to hold up a mirror to society. And as much of a mirror as this was in its own time, it still has a, a, a renewed sense of relevance today. And it might be difficult for some people who hold, whether it's prejudice or whether it's uh, you know ideological starkness, might be difficult for them to watch. You know, they would probably... If this episode came out today, 
you would have people on Twitter going nuts about how it was taking sides, you know, and uh, and and that's what I hashtag find. stick to Star Trek. That would be the thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's what I find continually refreshing and engaging about Star Trek, the original series in general. You know, I think, forgive my language, but Star Trek, the original series out of every Star Trek show and every Star Trek movie has the most balls. Like, it just does. And that's one of the things that I love about about this show and why it's my favorite of all of the Star Trek series is that... This episode is emblematic of how it wanted to grab the bull by the proverbial horns and, and wrestle those kinds of issues to the ground and serve as an example of, uh, of where a certain subset of people stood at the time in trying to react to the craziness of their own world. And, and that's, that's one of the things that I just continuously love about this show. It's a tough one to follow, Chris. <laughs> I think we're all sitting here going, yeah, okay. You know, drop the mic, walk out of the room. I think that's it. <laughs> well said. Thank you. Indeed. I appreciate, like, you know, some in the details of some of the, the writing, how Beale and Lokai, like, talk to each other and, like, the words that they would use um, and how that they would phrase things. Like, there are things that you hear, you know, today. Uh, there are things that you that you know you read about in history books that would happen in the 60s and then you know uh, the, at the turn of the century and during the Civil War and during you know at the you know in the the height of the slave trade in the in the you know mid 1700s to mid you know 1800s like you we've heard all these things before but then you see this on this show and you hear the same like hateful rhetoric being spewed out by by Beale and then the reactionist type of rhetoric from from Lokai. It, it's the same verbiage and it kind of, you know, kind of like lets you know, as the audience members, it's like, we're, you know, we're still, we haven't learned the lesson and we still keep saying and doing the same thing. Um, it's just, it's just interesting to me how that's like, you know, this show came out in the sixties and it's like touching on, you know, subject matter of that time and before it. And then here we are 2018 and we still have to hear that same language and verbiage you know it's like it's it's crazy but it's it's and it's and it's it's eye-opening right we go bill tells him he's like well you were all free and he's like well yeah were you free to be men we're free to have wives and children yeah. and it's like yeah you might not be a slave anymore but can you go around and not have the same fears that you know somebody like you who looks like can, exactly can do, yeah? yeah like one of the things he says is like you know when they're talking about slavery and like bill's like slaves like that was changed thousands of years ago it's like you hear that today when people's like well it's like slavery ended in 1865 what are you talking about racism doesn't exist and it's just like well i mean i mean no <laughs> like so it's like stuff like that like that's you know you hear stuff like that today uh so it's just kind of crazy how like it's like you know we as 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 people as a civilization we just like we still haven't learned well and the goalposts keep moving too right because that 10 too. years ago slavery also or not slavery but racism also ended 10 years ago that's when, true when uh when a black man was elected president right so somehow that's that's the end of racism. Uh-huh. Some people think, yeah. and it's just like, <laughs> so that that's well, yeah. That, hold, pump the brakes on that one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So so this Lance, then it has for you as a person of color, it has that continued sense of relevance. 
Oh yeah, like you know, like I just you know I pray that we get to the you know this you know Federation type future where like we've moved past these types of things because like sitting here in 2018, something I always say to friends and acquaintances and stuff. Zach Serby says it's like like I say stuff like you know it's not helping the cause or it's like you know like we're not there yet and it's just like we're, if we're in 2018 and we can do all these crazy things and all these good things and we have and we should be you know smarter at this point in in, in history we should be better and so I'm hoping for the day that we are better you know. Um, and that's that's one of the things that, you know, that Star Trek gives us. It gives us that hope that it's something that we can achieve if we set our mind to it. Yeah, some that some that Loki accuses Kirk of in this episode is like, oh, you're just you have you speak justice with your words, but not with your actions. Although in this episode, I think they the Enterprise crew does a very good they job do. of, of as Kirk says, the best representations. Agree, Federation, yes. my crew. You know, they're they're hearing what each of them has to say and all that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a, and, I, and Kirk says, I cannot take sides. So <laughs> there's a lot of Shatnerisms in this episode. He's well. he's he's sneaky good in this episode yeah, also. Right? Well, the third I think season 3 Kirk definitely has like you see the whole spectrum of Shatner across this season. Like you have I mean his performance if I had to choose a best Kirk performance, I would probably, you know, say what most people say and say City on the Edge of Forever, but in season 3 you get from the more kind of understated segment particularly in the auto destruct sequence i think in this episode but then you know you get to the enterprise incident and uh i'll kill you yeah I'll exactly kill you. Oh, Treader. kill you you know he just like <laughs> winds it up so much and then just like a rubber band like he lets it go but uh but no he's 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 pretty solid in this episode and uh and i i appreciate that even at the end the the, the last line of the episode he's like said of course for Starbase four, four. <laughs> and I'm like, all right. I, I did laugh at there, that. There's two ways to look at that. You're like, oh, what a what a great pause because he's been through all this, yeah, this this drama, right? And he just in his mind isn't you know is kind of in the clouds of what they've just experienced. So you can look at it that way. Or Shatner just forgot his line too, yeah. and that's the way I choose. <laughs> that's the way I choose it. But that's the brilliance of Shatner. Well, and, and you also got sabotage in this one. Yes, uh-huh. yeah. yes I, I laughed out loud when I heard it. They would say that we would sabotage. I, I rewound it. I was like, wait, did that actually just happen? Yeah, that is- <laughs> you say sabotage. I well, I think we need to ask Brandon Shea because I remember I, what episode does he say docile, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, and that's, that's very Canadian. It's very Canadian. And, you know, uh, Renaissance is Renaissance. So there are pronounced there there are differences, right? And his first language is French. And and so it's it's interesting, you know, when when you hear it now and you hear him uh on different shows. I was I was watching that episode, you know, Better Late Than Never and he's he's speaking French in Morocco, right? Cuz you know, he and I was thinking about that. I said how ironic that uh uh, the guy who plays the French guy in Star Trek can't speak it, but the guy who doesn't can't. So I just was like, uh, <laughs> I was going to say, does Patrick Stewart speak French? <laughs> but he's from Montreal, right? So that's how he grew up. So it is it is funny. Uh, even when you listen to some of his books, uh, if you listen to any of his audio books, there, there are different things that he's, he does pronounce that you go, I don't think that's Canadian or U.S., but uh, he's out there. <laughs> but that would be my question, you know, on, on sabotage. Well, yeah, this episode it runs the full gauntlet. It has a very you know universal, deep message, tackling some hot button issues for the '60s and today. And you know, we, but it's it's a lot of fun too. It's a lot of iconic Star Trek. Like I said, the, the black and white faces are iconic. By the way, I don't know if this will you know just blow everybody's mind. The makeup decision, the black and white faces, that was decided just a few days before the episode started by the director. 
Judge Taylor. That was not in the script. That was that was just a, a artistic choice again, uh, which has become so uh, uh, you know iconic. And you think, oh, I know. Let's have this weird alien and build a story around it. But no, that really wasn't the case. They had Gene Kuhn, his original ideas. They're gonna have like a like a devil looking alien and an angel looking alien. But the devil was gonna be the good one and the angel's gonna be the bad one because it's Star Trek. And we gotta change yeah. your, your preconceptions, that kind of thing, right? Uh, that's not what they did, and because I, you know, until I was doing some research, I had always assumed, like, they started with, like, the concept, the makeup, right, the alien look, and let's build it off of that. Not the case at all. Interesting. Uh, so that, that blew your mind. Well, even, even after they decided to do the, the bisected alien, didn't... They didn't they change it from a horizontal axis to a vertical one? Yeah, that was also in the thinking there, but I... I don't know why you would even suggest horizontal. Right. That, that wasn't yeah. just a suggestion. It's like, okay, what are you going to show? Are they going to be barefoot? Are you going to their feet? Are they wear shorts? Yeah. They, yeah. Like, I don't know something. how that would have worked and translated on television. Yeah, that would have been yeah. fascinating, yeah. But yeah, the, the, this episode is, is just is Star Trek at its best, I think. And not, not at its very best. There are better episodes of the original series, right? But for what Star Trek represents is Star Trek at its best. And, and, and you don't have to... Again, we're, we've had a lot of fun talking about this episode. And you don't have to have you know, a, a, like a dark, gritty, depressing, you know, kind of uh, package when you have a serious message, you know? And, and in fact, I think that can help translate the message even better when you're like, you know what, that was enjoyable, but it also had a lot to say, and that's Star Trek for you folks. Just piggybacking on what you said, Zach, too often, especially today it seems, people equate dark with good, and they they don't go hand in hand nearly as much as uh, people at Warner Brothers seem to think at the moment. <laughs> so, Why did you uh, say that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they can, but it's not like it's not an inextricable link, like some people say. And uh, I mean, Star Trek is a continuous representation of that fact, I think, especially TOS, uh, some of the movies as well. But um, no, I, I, I am always in awe of this episode when I watch it. And I know that sounds like maybe a hyperbolic adjective to describe it, but it's it's such a, a good solid example of the the consciousness that this show had that I can't help but uh, but just really greatly appreciate it every time that I watch it and it's engaging too which is a huge boon for it I mean the fact that Frank Gorshin is in there the fact that they decided to zoom in on the red alert just to be different you know I mean it's it's an engaging episode to watch it's dynamic to watch it's tense. Uh, it's a really, really solid example of, of third season Star Trek, but also uh, it is one of the best episodes of the series in my estimation. So uh, I'm, I'm, uh, it's definitely one of my favorites, and I, I appreciate being invited to talk about it. This episode, it's, it's engaging, and it makes you think. And all of the best Star Trek does both of those things. So, you know, A-plus in my book. Well, first of all, Lance, Chris, it's great to have you on the show, and, and I, I really enjoyed listening. Uh, I, I think what, what makes the original series so um, much fun after all these years, and you can still have a podcast talking about it, you know, 52 years after it first aired, uh, is, is amazing. So I, I think everything you said is true, and, and I have to be careful here because I don't want to stick my foot through a Picasso. Um, there's just been a lot of, I think, very... Um, great comments that come on. And, and every time I hear it too, it makes me think a little bit differently, uh, watch things a little bit differently. 
So the perspectives that, that you bring, and, and, you know, obviously Zach and I, we do this, well, we used to do it every week, maybe it's like every three weeks now, but whenever, <laughs> we, get, whenever we get to talk with our schedules, uh, it, it, just, um, it, it just highlights even more why I love this show, uh, what it brings to the table, and, uh, and, and why it's still relevant all these years later, even more so than shows that have premiered and broadcast after it in the same family, so... Thank you. I think I think some of the things you said were um, very powerful, um, and it and it helps me sometimes too. Just just reaffirm, you know, why it is uh, I, I love Star Trek. So thank you guys. All right. Well, Lance, if people want to find you out there on the internet. Where can they find you? Uh, they can find me on Twitter at Sir Lance Laster. And Chris, if people want to find you out there on the internet. Where can they find you? At Chris Clow, C-H-R-I-S-C-L-O-W, and uh, also you can check out Discovery Debrief, a Star Trek podcast where we talk about Star Trek Discovery. Uh, pretty much every aspect. Right now we're doing a series of, and I think I said this the last time, but it's been a while since we recorded. Uh, we're doing a series of each of our panelists' favorite, all-time favorite Star Trek episodes. Mine was The City on the Edge of Forever. We've also done one on Tapestry from The Next Generation, we just recorded one on The Visitor from Deep Space Nine. And the next one we're planning on doing, kind of interesting, Regeneration from Enterprise. Uh, but we also have a couple of guests that are going to come on and, and do them as well. Uh, but we also review Discovery novels. Uh, me and one of my co-hosts, Cicero Holmes, from the Spawn on Me podcast, we're probably going to review the Age of Discovery expansion for Star Trek Online that's going to hit consoles sometime in the next month which should be a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, Discovery Debrief is on Twitter at DSC Debrief. Nice. Uh, what is the name of the Enterprise episode with the Ferengi? Acquisition. acquisition. Right. As wrong as Acquisition was in a prequel to a race you shouldn't have met yet, Regeneration is right. That is a brilliant sequel to First Contact and a prequel. Yeah. And it shouldn't work at all, but it is one of my favorite episodes of Enterprise. So just since you mentioned it, they're interesting that... Uh, uh, that's uh, someone's favorite episode of all of Star Trek. So he like he wanted that Cic- Cicero is a big fan of Enterprise, and he wanted to sort because of, uh, originally he was going to choose a Voyager episode. He actually just watched Voyager all the way through for the first time, but uh, he definitely wanted to throw in some Enterprise representation, and uh, that one is definitely going to be quite a catalyst for conversation among our panel. That's for sure. All right, looking forward to it. Well, let that be your last battlefield. Isn't the only thing. We've been talking about on Trek FM this week. Here's a quick look at what else you might have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, Earl Grey. However, one thing Everyone's I do Everyone's la- going to sing the song, Everyone Join Me. Life Force. No, I will not join you. I'm sorry. Okay, however. Meta Treks. Speaking of character, I always found it interesting how many ways. Q manifests himself, the characters that he takes on. We see him as a Starfleet commander, a Bajoran waiter. We see him as an alien captain. Uh, this this is just a, man a cosplayer. This is a man of many faces. Who knew Q was such a theater geek? The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. I felt like I was in a Vegas casino and the bling, bling, yeah. bling, like it was the jackpot. And I'm like, wait a minute, what's going on? How is she affecting the replicators and that's throwing food out? I've never seen a replicator throw food out. Melodic tricks. Well, it was definitely about a lower budget. There was no question that 
we could not afford Jerry Goldsmith. And later, by the time we got to do Star Trek VI, we couldn't afford Jamie Horner. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcast. If you're an Apple user, get the show on iTunes or the Apple Podcasts app. Be sure to hit the subscribe button. That helps us out greatly and makes it easier for other listeners to find the show. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Speaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course, you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website and grab the RSS link as well. If you would like to get in touch with us here at Trek FM, you can always find us on trek.fm slash contact and look in the sidebar on the show page. Or you can go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm and please leave us a voice message. You can also contact us through Twitter at trek.fm, Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm, and the Babel Conference. Type the Babel Conference, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, or go to our website at Trek.fm and click Discussion on the menu bar. Another way you can help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. If you visit patreon.com slash trek.fm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trek.fm, you'll find our current goals and different milestone contribution levels along with all the great perks we have for you. These perks include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits, seats on our content development team, and more. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find the details at patreon.com slash trek.fm. Speaking of Patreon, thank you as always to our associate producers for Standard Orbit. They are Norman C. Lau, Nick Anastasio, Tim Robertson, Richard Marquez, Corey Elrod, and Dan Rhodes. You guys, uh, your, your contributions, your help, your support mean the world to us, and we appreciate you being associate producers on Standard Orbit. So to find me on the interwebs, you can find me on the Babel Conference. I'm there all the time. Or you can find me on Twitter at BostonSCPO. As for me, you can find me on Twitter at MoronZach. That's M-O-O-R-E-O-N-C-A-C-H. And I'm also the host of my own podcast, Always Holding on the Smallville, where we talk about each and every episode of that Young Superman show. You can find us on Twitter at AlwaysMallville with one S. You can find me on Twitter. I am at Trekkie01D. Celebrating Trek Tuesdays. That's tomorrow, everybody. Wear your Trek. Yes, and use the hashtag TrekTuesday. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and join us again next time here on Trek FM for another episode of Standard Orbit.